Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. For today's episode, we welcome back last week's guest, Julia Barnes, but this time she's in the host seat. Making a documentary involves learning a lot of information and then condensing it into a very short format. For Sea of Life, I interviewed over 50 experts, and only about 20 of them were featured in the movie, sometimes only for a few minutes. I've got this depth of information sitting on my hard drives, and today I'm going to share with you some never-before-heard clips from an interview I did with Tom Campbell. Tom is an underwater filmmaker who has witnessed big changes in the ocean over his lifetime. He started by telling me how he got into diving. For two years, I made a hundred dives each year, and I was so excited about the diving thing mm -hmm. that I wanted to um, be a professional diver. And the only way to do that at the time was to come down to the States and go in the military, which is what I did. And when I got out, I became an instructor only because I went to a dive shop to rent a tank. And the 21-year-old kid behind the counter would not rent me a tank because I didn't have a regular certification card. The Calgary card I got was called the Calgary Aqua Bronx. Nobody ever heard of them. And the only other card I had was a U.S. Navy qualified diver. <laughs> he didn't buy that. So he says, well, I can't give you a tank because you don't have a certification card. And I said, you must be kidding me. I've been diving for six years, you know, locking out of submarines and jumping out of airplanes, and I went to the toughest dive school in the whole world. So I got to have a certification card. So I went to an instructor course about three weeks later. So yeah, I've been diving quite a bit, and I've been diving quite a few places around the world. I personally feel that having dived as long as I have in as many countries as I have, and over this long period of time, that uh, most people don't take the ocean serious enough. Every second underwater, there's a life and death struggle. All these different creatures and all these things that live in the ocean are there on a survival basis. Some will make it, some won't. But the cycle is very evenly balanced, and it's always been that way until humans intervene. Then there's a problem. And we've seen it on land. We take some animals and we cause them to become extinct. We introduce other animals where they shouldn't be, and it creates astronomical problems. So it's pretty evident with what humans do that we are the greatest danger to the oceans. I asked Tom to tell me what the ocean used to look like and how much it had changed in his lifetime. You know, I'm probably like a lot of people who first become interested in the ocean. You don't know much about it, you don't understand it, partly because you can't see so much of it. When I was in the military, one of the funnest things that we did was blow up reefs. I mean, we blew up a lot of reefs. Part of our job was, was the responsibility of swimming into a beachhead at night and or in the early morning and checking the depth of the water and finding coral heads that would be in the way of a landing force. And we would put plastic explosives on them with debt cord and then swim back out to the boat and blow them up. And there used to be hundreds of fish come to the surface blown up, bloated, hundreds, thousands maybe in some cases, plus the coral reefs were all blasted to pieces. And I used to think, well, that was a pretty cool blast, you know, that was a good one. Well, a lot of time's gone by since then. 
And now you realize how detrimental that is. Some of the reef regenerates itself fairly quickly and some doesn't. Not to mention all the marine life that you kill. And so over the years, especially I started as, like many people do, as a spearfishing guy. But over the years, um, I started to see that it was harder and harder to find certain fish that we wanted to spear. It's not over a five year or even a 10 year period, but over a 15 or 20 year period. I could see the difference. I started to become concerned about that. And then not too long ago, uh, a well-known photographer, a friend of mine, had to do a story on angel sharks. And when I used to teach diving as a dive instructor a long time ago, um, I would tell people that when you get close to the bottom, make sure you look around where you put your feet because there's gonna be an angel shark for sure where you are. There are so many of them. Circa about uh, 15, 20 years later, when this friend of mine was telling me that he was doing this story on angel sharks for a magazine, and I said, oh, I haven't seen many lately. He says, we just spent seven days looking for them. We found one. So at a time, I used to tell people, warn people that not to step on them when you hit the bottom because there are so many. Now you have to spend several days, if you're lucky, before you see one. The other example I would give is that <clears throat> I lived in California for a long time, and I was an avid visitor to the Channel Islands there. And on the way out to the Channel Islands, we used to see not hundreds, but thousands of blue sharks on the surface when the water was flat, literally thousands of them. It was really cool to see them because they glisten in the water. They're really pretty to look at. Now, circa again, I'm talking about diving in the 60s and 70s. Now we're into the 2013, 14, and 15. And if my partner, Beth, dived with me in the Channel Islands for six years before she saw a blue shark. They're just not there. The drift nets have come in and taken out most of them, and <clears throat> they're very detrimental to the, to the wildlife in the oceans. When Tom talks about the decline of ocean wildlife with blue sharks and angel sharks, it reminds me of many similar conversations I've had with marine biologists and divers. Shifting baseline is a big concept that we covered in Sea of Life. It's this idea that as the ocean is changing, each generation adapts to a new version of normal in an increasingly depleted world. So over generations, it can be easy for people to forget what the ocean used to look like and what it should look like. The blue sharks Tom mentioned are incredible to be in the water with. I did a dive with six of them off Rhode Island and they were playful and curious, always bumping into our cameras. When I was in California, I signed up for a similar dive. We went out looking for blue sharks, spent all day on the water with chum and special sounds that are meant to attract the sharks. After waiting for hours, one shark finally showed up. She was incredibly shy, only interested in the bait. The people who run the charter explained that years ago, people would go out looking for these sharks and have 50 of them swarming around the back of the boat the moment they dropped bait in the water. Since then, shark populations have been so decimated. I asked Tom what he thinks the biggest challenge facing the ocean is. Probably the biggest challenge facing the oceans today 
are educating enough people about what's necessary to protect the oceans. And it's one of the reasons that I like uh, being a filmmaker, because it's a big part of what we do is trying to, we don't just do it to make some money. It's not really what it's about. It's something that we enjoy doing. Most filmmakers do it because they really like to do it. Because the average filmmaker <laughs> doesn't make very much money. And, and very few of them get rich. And so I think the challenge is making films and doing presentations or creating awareness um, with television, with books, pictures, magazines, articles, and so forth, seminars. Tom's organization, Ocean Gems, works towards educating young people about the ocean. One of the educational programs that we're doing is, a, is based on, uh, on the internet, on Skype. We actually are in touch with like, it's about 83,000 teachers around the world, multiplied by their students. And we can step into those classrooms through that venue, that genre. And, and some of the most interesting ones have been people who are the farthest from the ocean. Like in Wyoming, we did a, a program there through Skype. None of the kids in this classroom had ever been to the ocean. So when they see these pictures, you know, these marvelous pictures that you can take underwater of the brilliant colors and all the different species of fish and stuff, it's like, wow, look at that. So these are people that are touched by what you can do with films and exposure. And that's, I think that's really important. You know, and everybody should, I think everyone should take a look at themselves and say, what can I do as an individual, rather than just follow the rest of the sheep that jump off the cliff or whatever. I think that everybody should try and do something so that when they leave this planet, they don't just say, I either made a lot of money, I'm very wealthy, uh, or I've traveled all over the world and done this and done that, but what have you really done for the planet? Maybe nothing. So everybody should try to do something. I asked Tom to talk about industrial fishing. I've, I've had personal experience with drift nets, deep water drift nets, ghost nets that are lost on the bottom, tremble nets, um, saners type of fishing, and it's really horrific. It's too efficient. You know, a hundred years ago, we didn't have, we had smarter fish than we did fishermen. And 200 years ago, that was especially true. So the fish could survive because you could only fish so many with the way that we fished. So then came long lines with 10,000 hooks on a mile long leader. And then came drift nets that they could put in the sea that will go 120 feet down under the water and stretch out for miles and miles and miles. Not one creature that comes through those nets escapes. Sometimes even fish in a net sequence that's maybe this wide, even small fish get stuck. I've seen it. I mean, I don't, uh, it's not something that I'm just saying. I, uh, with fellow, with a friend and fellow cinematographer Howard Hall, we once did a story in 1983 <clears throat> on drift nets. For six weeks, we shot at night out in the open ocean on these nets because the fishermen would shoot at you. So we had to be very careful. And it was like a military operation. And the things that we saw in those nets was pff, horrifying. I mean, I wondered what they were fishing for because they had sharks, they had small fish, they had seals and sea lions. Uh, 
just bat rays. I mean, every kind of fish you can imagine was stuck in those nets for miles. And <clears throat> so then we had to photograph them and film them when they came to the surface, when they brought them up. So the way we did that was to use a boat. They, there was no cameras visible. We shot through a window on the side of the boat, and we traveled very slowly by the net boat. And they would reel up their nets <clears throat> and with big power reels. As the bat rays would come up to the surface, which they don't want, and the other fish, they'd hit them with a baseball bat. And then they'd just take them out of the net and throw them over the side. And that's what they did with all the fish. And that, that's just one tiny little area that they were working. And they worked that way worldwide. Here's another example. I once did a story, I think it was for Discovery Channel or somebody like that, and it was on squid fishing. So off the coast of California, they fish at night. They put out huge lights, and the squid come to the surface when they see the light. And when they come to the surface, they're surrounded in these round nets, and it's like a purse. And then they sew up the bottom of it, pull the bottom together, and then they lift the net, and they dump it onto the boat. So they bring up nets about the size of this room, several of them during the night, the size of this room, full of squid. And so I dove inside the nets, outside the nets, all over the place. Everything was done in the middle of the night. So I happened to be talking to the head of the fishing fleet who owned those boats. And I asked him the question, are these squid taken before they lay their eggs or after they lay their eggs? And do you know what he said? I don't know. So this is an example of commercial fishing that's not under control. They don't know what they're doing, and it doesn't matter. As long as they take as many squid as they can and get paid for it, if that fishery dries up, they go someplace else. So there should be a lot more control on this type of thing. And it's tough because it's a political thing, and you've got politicians involved. And when you get politicians involved, I don't have to tell you what happens. Now you've got a whole bunch of inefficient business people usually making decisions that are oftentimes based on financial rewards, favoritism, uh, who you know and who you don't know. And that's an unfortunate way to run the country. I asked what's standing in the way of conservation. What's, what's standing in the way of conservation efforts are people who don't believe in conservation efforts. If you don't believe in it, why should you, sh why should you support it? Why should you do anything to back it? You won't. And there are people out there who are constantly saying it's not necessary. The ocean will take care of itself. Forget it, it'll take care of itself. And you need only look at the price of a, a large tuna. A big tuna used to be worth hardly anything. You'd go to the fish market and they'd sell it for a few hundred dollars. Now there are tuna that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for one fish because they're so rare. So the calamity of that is that as they become more rare, people pay more money for them and the search becomes more relentless to catch them. So if you look at the outcome of that, there's only one outcome, very bad, very bad. It's the same thing with elephants and rhinos and animals like that. They try to protect them, but the value of their horns continues to rise so the poachers continue to be encouraged and supported to kill them. And in the end, there's only one answer. There's only one outcome. Eventually, there's no more elephants. There's no more rhino. There's no more horn business. 
but look what the price that we had to pay for it. So that's kind of the issue there. There are animals that go extinct every day almost. But if they're out of sight and out of mind, who cares? You know, I don't know about little frogs in the rainforest that are disappearing, so I don't think about them. It's not that I don't care, but I don't think about them. So really, I don't care because they're not on my mind. So I think that's where people like you and I and many others at this festival, most people here are filmmakers and they try to tell a story and hopefully they'll be successful in getting their story out. There's a downside to that too. Um, and it's too bad Chris Palmer's not here this week because I don't know if you've read his book, Shooting in the Wild. You should read it. It's an excellent book. There's a new one coming out also. And he points out things negative about filmmakers because he once was one himself. He took advantage of wildlife to make his films. I've done it. Everybody I know of has done it because nobody ever said much about it. You just kind of assume, well, it's okay, you know, as long as you don't kill things. But things do get killed. And for example, the best example I can think of is Shark Week. We're all about making films and trying to expose things that we believe in. But over the years, things have changed a little bit and they're starting to become more of a reality type atmosphere about making films. I'm not by myself in saying that I don't feel good about participating in that. And the reason is that I think there's a lot of damage that can be done when you dramatize something that's not right. And a perfect example of that is Discovery Channel's Shark Week. Uh, I'll admit that I've contributed and sold photos, not photos, but uh, images that I've shot, videotape, over the years to Shark In fact, I knew Tom Horton, who started Shark Week, and most of the young guys shooting that program now wouldn't even know his name. He started it. He started it to create an awareness about sharks and expose sharks to people all over the world. And he did a great job of it. But as we get more and more toward reality type shows, we have to start looking for sensationalism and things that really grab people. I mean, <clears throat> I was in a special forces unit in the military and I went through special weapons training. I learned how to dive with closed circuit rebreathers. I jumped out of airplanes. I swam out of submarines. I did very cool things. But you know, that's really nothing compared to Arnold Schwarzenegger who can run across the wing of a Harrier jet in flight with a blazing machine gun. So over time, people's brains and their attitudes have been changed somewhat about what really works, what's more fun to look at, what's more exciting. The reality of this has started to take place. And I see it in a lot of television shows, some of which I can't, I, it's painful to watch them. And we don't watch them as a rule. But, and I think Shark Week exemplifies that. And they do because it's, under the guise of sharks are endangered, we're killing, they estimate, 100 million a year for shark finning, drift nets, et cetera, et cetera, and we need to protect them. Now, let's talk about the 10 deadliest shark attacks in the world, and let's talk about the 12 most dangerous sharks in the world, and let's see how they work when they attack people. Let's watch the blood and guts come out of the water, and let's hear the horror that these people go through. And that really entices people to watch this program for some reason. It draws them more than the story about a shark and its history and where they came from and what they do and what they eat and so on and so forth. So consequently, 
And this was driven home to me very hard one day when a 10-year-old kid that lived next to me, he idolizes, idolized me when he was a young kid and because of what I did. I was gone all the time shooting these great documentaries and traveling all over the world, and it was such a cool job. And I did a lot of work with sharks. And he just idolized that. And of course, you know what he wanted to do when he grew up. And one time I was away and Shark Week was played, and him and his, he and his mother watched Shark Week. And Jason told me later, he said, you know, Tom, I still want to do something in the ocean, but I don't want to do it with sharks because it's too dangerous, I think. There's so many people that are eaten and bitten and lose their legs and their arms and, and all this. And his mother said, I think Jason's right. We watched Shark Week, and there's a, they're very dangerous. And we saw a program that said the 10 most dangerous sharks, and they live right here in our backyard. And we saw people who had lost their arms and legs. And you know... These are, this is such a small percentage of the population that it's not even worth talking about. There are more people killed by dogs and eaten by dogs than sharks. More people killed by deer and a number of other things that you could use as graphic examples. So why do we have to take sharks, which everybody in the world is afraid of? Um, it's been said that the two scariest things for anybody are public speaking in front of a big audience and shark attacks. So programming that fo focuses on that type of thing for sensationalism and money, profit, I think is going down the wrong road. So that's my problem with some of the programming, and there's lots of it. I picked Shark Week just because I happen to work in the oceans, and I've been diving with sharks for 50 years. And I've not ever used a cage. I have spent, been in South Africa 10 or 12 times and dove with white sharks every time I've been there. I've been to Mexico and been in the water with white sharks. And I've always noticed that they're very curious. They get close, but if you have eyeball contact, uh, they just get close. And that's all they're interested in until you start putting bait in the water and doing things to entice them to bite and carry on. So I, for one, would not be very popular with some of these young kids that are coming up who are shooting this stuff and loving it because it's really exciting and it's, it's high voltage. But is it the right thing to do? I don't think so. I asked what would the ocean look like if current trends continue? You couldn't possibly believe that we aren't doing some damage. And if you start diving and traveling like we do and look at the damage around the world to different reef structures and different places and the amount of plastic that people throw in the ocean and how it affects things. I've dived in some of the most beautiful places in the world. Uh, Indonesia for one where I've been underwater and barely been able to see the sunlight coming through the surface because of plastic debris floating on the surface. It's disgusting. And then if you dive at night, you're working your way around bottles and plastic and dead things on the bottom. And <clears throat> marine life has trouble surviving in that type of environment. And you can't imagine how many turtles, dolphins, whales, and other creatures eat these plastic bags that are not digestible. They, of course, die, but they might die in 10,000 feet of water. They sink down to the bottom, they're out of sight, out of mind, who cares? It's not measurable. Certain things are measurable, and scientists who specialize in this, and environmental people who specialize in it, and who travel and are concerned about this, have recorded so much of it that nobody could argue the point. I really think, more to the point, that we're headed down a very negative path. 
I think there are a lot of good things being done for the ocean and for the environment. There's a lot of people who dedicate their lives. I work with a number of them uh, with our Ocean Gems project. So people can do these kind of things if they have the goal and the desire to do it, you know. And uh, I just think that I think every person can make a difference and everyone should try to make some kind of difference. No, no matter how small it is, try to make some kind of difference, whether it's something that you create as a mentor where you influence somebody else in what they do, or whether you do it yourself. Uh, everybody should feel obligated to do that. And above all, they should realize how important the oceans are to our total survival. And if we don't do something to protect them and keep them, you know, once, once the certain animals are extinct, well, who's next? We are. To learn more about Tom Campbell and the work of Ocean Gems, you can find links on the show notes page at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC148. Today's episode was hosted by Julia Barnes and produced by me, Catherine Dunning. Our theme music is by The Humidors. 